0: And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places.
1: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Andy Christie.
2: And he sews closed the rip in, in my scrotum. Um, I know. <laughs> <sighs> that and more
1: but first, I want to let everyone know that Risk is currently looking for stories for our Halloween episode and our holiday episode, you know, that comes around Christmas time and Hanukkah and all that at the end of December. So if you have good scary stories, a ghost story, an encounter with a knife wielding maniac, a nightmare, a bad drug trip, something really spooky that would be typical to see in a horror movie or something, Pitch us, or if you have a, a good story that happens to take place around Christmas time, Hanukkah, you know, New Year's Eve around that time, send us your pitches. Pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. There's instructions there for how to do it. If you have a friend that you know has a good story around those sorts of subjects, go to risk-show.com slash submissions and pitch us right away. Also, today's show is supported by Canna Pet. Go to canna-pet.com and use the code RISK at the checkout for 50% off your order. Everyone knows that dogs are a man's best friend. So what if I told you that you could make your best bud's life Even better. That's where Canapet comes in. From tasty biscuits to oil and capsules, Canapet's all natural and organic CBD pet supplements are your go to if your pet is suffering from pain, allergies, cancer, anxiety, or seizures. I know what you're thinking is this pot for pets? Canapet is made from industrial hemp not marijuana. This means it contains CBD, not THC. So it won't get your pet high. Actually, there are zero psychoactive effects. The product is fully legal and vet recommended for dogs, cats, horses, and other animals. CANAPET is a holistic alternative to pharmaceuticals and no prescription is needed to purchase. You can order online at Cana podcast PET.com with the code risk for 50% off. For more information, go to canna-pet.com that's c a-n-n-a-pet.com and remember the code risk. Now get up and dance, motherfuckers. Take it from this redhead queer. You don't have time to go to the office. It will be past- with so many people, you'll want to scream, so use stamps.com instead! You use your own computer and printer to print your US postage for your
3: letters and packages.
1: We use stamps.com. Why don't you use stamps.com? Right now, get this special offer when you use my promo code
3: RESC! It's a four-week trial, and we know
1: that's not confusing.
0: <gasps>
1: Plus a $110 bonus off for the digital scam. And free postage. Go to stamps.com
3: before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in risk. That Enter risk.
1: that's right and right now you too can enjoy the stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments go to stamps.com click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk stamps.com never go to the post office again now here's the show Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Scray behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Uncharted Territory. Three stories of situations the storytellers never imagined they'd find themselves in. In a little bit... We're going to hear from Terry Wolfish Cole. She shared a story with us at our Risk Live show that we recently did in Washington, D.C. Absolutely phenomenal. I'll talk more about Terry after her story. But before that, we're going to hear from one of the most important people in the New York City storytelling scene, Mr. Andy Christie. It's wonderful to have Andy back on the show. It's been a long time since we've had Andy on the show. Andy is the creator and founder of The Liar Show. It is often imitated, but nothing beats the original. Uh, The Liar Show, you hear four stories, three are true, one is total bullshit, and the audience has to hash out Which is the bullshit one. Uh, You can find that at theliarshow.com. Here is Andy Christie now at the Risk Live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn with a story we call My First Time.
2: Thank you. So um, Maureen and I were the same age, about 12, 12 and a half uh, when she moved onto the block. So she wasn't really a woman. Um, as a matter of fact, being the, the fat kid in the neighborhood, my breasts were actually quite a bit nicer than, than hers. Uh, but the, the buttons on the front of her white Catholic school blouse did pull a little bit underneath the gold crucifix she wore around her neck. So when she moved onto the block, I spent a lot of time hanging around in front of her stoop, waiting for her to to, to come out, you know, checking out the front door, waiting for her acting like I could give a shit if she ever came out or not, you know, just (laughs) being there, waiting for her. And uh, we never crossed paths. Either we kept missing each other or she kept spotting me out there. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure which. Um, But it was kind of, I guess it was called lurking. It was kind of a behavior... Behavior that goes from kind of cute to possibly criminal um, (laughs) around the time puberty sets in, um, which is around where I was uh, in my life right then. (laughs) So so one one day I'm I'm there uh, doing my thing in front of a place, and I'm doing that thing where you uh, make believe you're just kind of killing time waiting for your next big important meeting to happen. Um... (laughs) You know, if there had been like uh, laptops and Starbucks, I would have fit right in back then. You know, checking my watch, checking my iPhone, you know, shaking my head, looking out the window, you know, wondering, oh, who else is screwing this up for me? That kind of thing, waiting for her to show up. And when you do that, when you're waiting for someone to come out, uh, someone who doesn't know you're alive, it could take a while. So you look for stuff to kind of uh, keep you busy. Right in front of her building, there was a, uh, a hole in the sidewalk, um, I guess it was like an old coal chute or something. And it was covered with a, a rusty metal plate, maybe a quarter of an inch thick, maybe 18 inches square. And it was covering this hole, but it wasn't completely covering it. It was a little too small for the hole, I guess, where the hole had broken, so it was sort of a kiddie corner. You know, two corners sitting on the concrete, two corners kind of floating free. So it was a little bit unstable. Um, so I thought, oh, here's something that can keep me busy while I'm waiting with Maureen. So I wandered over to it. And I uh, started kind of checking it out, you know, analyzing it as if I was some kind of like a 12-year-old civil engineer or something. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. You know, crouched down over it and kicked it a little bit with one of my sneakers and just shoved it around a little bit. And then I decided to kind of get on it to see exactly how, how what I could do with that um, to kill time. And I very carefully kind of put one foot on either uh, the corner of this thing and started rocking back and forth, you know, carefully and slowly until I kind of got the hang of it and I felt like I was like surfing out there in front of her building. Um, I looked like a fat, possibly autistic child, (laughs) I'm sure. Uh, But I kept doing this until I hear a window open and I look up and it's Maureen's window. But it is not Maureen it's possibly Maureen's grandmother because there's an old woman looking out the window at me. Not kind of casually, like staring, really. Um, Like glaring, really. Like angry, really. Like maybe this is her favorite hole in the sidewalk and I'm messing around with it, you know? And so I decide maybe it's time for me to get out of there before I give Maureen's grandmother a heart attack and they pin it on me. So I decide to get out, um, but I'm so panicky about leaving, I I forget, to be careful, I forget that if I lift up one foot of one corner of this plate, that the other unsupported corner will kind of pivot down, which it does really quickly, like instantly, actually. And it grinds to a stop in a vertical position with two corners wedged against the inside of the concrete in the hole, with one corner pointing down towards the basement, and one corner pointing up to where my legs meet. You know. And I go down like a wishbone with one leg on either side of this plate. And then I slam to a stop um, on the corner of this rusty blade upon which my recently pubescent testicles become impaled. I'm trying to describe what that felt like. It hurt. really, really hurt. Um, So all of this is why the first uh, woman, who was not mommy, to see me naked uh, wasn't Maureen, but an emergency room uh, nurse wearing a surgical mask and what looked like a butcher's apron. (laughs) Um, And I'm not only naked, I'm actually presenting to this adult female my bloody genitalia was not the plan <laughs> she, she she's not Maureen you know um, um, but so, and she's right over me I can feel her body heat and we're both kind of enveloped in all these kind of nice smells you know it's uh, perfume and Vicks rub and, and iodine and she has not a, uh, a gold Catholic school crucifix dangling between her breasts but a uh, stainless steel stethoscope and she's holding a syringe to stab my personal area and a razor to shave away my gore-matted downy pubic hair (laughs) and the plus side uh, she was paying attention to me She was like right on top of me and I could see that her breasts were bigger than mine and Maureen's like put together. And I felt her heat and I felt her breathing and I could not believe as I watched her very focused and very carefully and very gently shave around the uh, bloody erection. that I couldn't believe had developed. Um, on one hand, it was, it was kind of encouraging, um, considering what had just happened down there. Uh, but I also was like mortified. I was just mortified and I didn't want to, I wanted to make believe I didn't even know it was there and you know, draw any more attention to it as if the shaving cream island that it was growing out of Uh, didn't make it obvious enough to both of us Uh, but she was great she kind of ignored it she kind of shaved around it moved it here to there and uh, the whole time being just so unbelievably nice and calming me down and telling me not to worry I'll be fine she said it looks much worse uh, than it is she said, it's just mainly a lot of blood. I don't know, but the phrase, a lot of blood, I think is the definition of something that is exactly as bad as it looks. <laughs> but she keeps doing that, comforting me, being sweet, until she's done uh, shaving me. Then the, uh, the doctor takes over, and he sews closed the rip in, in my scrotum. Um, I know. I know. I'm sorry
3: that's
2: what happened <laughs> it was kind of like a, like a hole you get in your pocket that your change drops out of and it goes you know, all all the time like I can kind of picture this little flesh pink ball running down my pants like and rolling out into the street and getting run over by a truck or something um, in case you didn't get the picture that's what's what everyone does thinking so anyway when, when, when the doctor's done sewing me shut she comes back and she cleans me and bandages me up and while I am sitting there on the gurney, kind of wondering what my future holds for me now. Um, and not really knowing, because at the time I had no idea what my future held for me. I didn't know what I was gonna be missing out on. I didn't know what was out there ahead. I sat there and she sat down. And at this point she had taken off her, uh, her surgical mask and she sat down next to me. And I could see her lips and I could see they were smiling And she took my hand and she put it in her lap while I uh, cried like a baby. And she said, uh, again, don't worry, you'll you'll be fine. You'll be fine, until I kind of believed her. And she said, uh, just be more careful next time. (laughs) And then she said the greatest thing I've ever heard before or since. She said, be more careful next time because someday you're gonna need that. like I was a man or something. (laughs) Anyway, I consider that my first time. (laughs) Um, Like yours, probably. It was um, unbearably intimate, you know, incredibly new, and potentially uh, disastrous. But uh, because of this kind woman, Um, My memory of it is that it was also warm and safe. And when I think back, kind of funny. They should all be like that. I'm not going to say it's been all downhill from there. Uh, But it's been hard to match. And I'd like to thank Maureen for that. Thank you. I don't think anybody knew there was an issue with the balls. Some days one ball may feel good, the next day it may not. It depends on maybe how old the ball was. I think there's a lot of variables with, obviously, mother nature and with, with the balls. Everybody has a preference. Some guys like them round and some guys like them thin. Some guys like them tacky. Some guys like them brand new. Some guys like old balls. I mean, they're all different. You know, whatever feels good that day, those are the ones that I typically choose. You know, to me, they're perfect. I don't want anyone touching the balls after that. I don't want anyone rubbing them. To me, those balls are perfect. They also know how I like the balls, and I tell them how great they are before the game. So they, you know, they know how I like it, and that's you know, exactly the way they are.
4: It's December of 1998 I am 33 years old I am in a hospital room at St. Vincent's Hospital in the West Village in New York City with Mark Mark is dying and we know this two ways we know by looking at him because his arms are bent at the elbow and at the wrist drawn up under his chin His legs are bent at the knee and drawn up into his belly. He's lying on his side. His skin is kind of sallow and orangey looking. His hair is almost gone. I don't know if he's asleep or he's in a coma or what, but he's not there. We also know he's dying because he's alone in the room. At St. Vincent's, the absolute epicenter of AIDS in New York City. The men lie four and six and eight beds to a room, I guess until the very end. By the time they put you in this box where day and night cease to have any meaning and the shades are drawn and people just come and go, you're alone. I met Mark on my first day of graduate school in 1986. I was 21 he was I guess 22 he was an undergrad but he was older because he came to school after having been in the military and I walked into this Latin class and I saw this I don't know boy man guy I saw this guy and he was gorgeous now you should know up until this moment of my life I grew up in a tight-knit Jewish community in Buffalo. I went to school in Binghamton, where 60% of everybody was Jewish and from Long Island. And gorgeous meant like 5'8", curly brown hair, maybe played guitar, dealt a little weed on the side and had his own car. This was like a whole nother animal. This guy, was six feet tall, and 200 pounds of solid muscle. He had this strawberry blonde flat top that was left over from the military, piercing blue eyes, creamy white skin, and freckles on every inch of him. And I was just drawn to him. I I sat right down, I introduced myself, he introduced himself. His name, if you could believe it, was Mark Anthony Brunson. He was from Mesquite, Texas. And we became such fast friends right away. We were perfect for each other. He, he needed a little parenting. You know, his, uh, he was different from everybody I'd ever met. He, his parents didn't give him any money. That was totally different. I didn't know anybody else like that. His daddy had rejected him. When the military kicked him out for being gay, his daddy said, I don't want any part of you. His parents were divorced and his daddy was long gone, but he found other daddies, so that was okay. <laughs> and he needed a little bit of mommying, you know, somebody to help cash his checks and, and make dinner. And I just needed everything. <laughs> I was 21 years old, And I was, like, a solid virgin, and not just a virgin. Like, I had never been naked with anybody. I had never had a boyfriend, nothing. So we were perfect together, you know? And we would walk the city holding hands and finding the best cheap places where you could eat a soy burger dinner for $2.95 in 1986. Cheese was an extra dollar, so you had to decide if you wanted to splurge. And everybody thought he was my boyfriend, and I would just be like, no, 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 that's just Mark, he's my best friend, you know, it was great. There was this sort of undercurrent of tension, though. I would get kind of pissed off. Men loved Mark, all the men. The daddies, the other Twinkies, everybody loved Mark. And Mark was always fucking late because we'd make a plan to meet somewhere at a time and he was going to like bring whatever and he would not show up. And I knew perfectly well it was because he had spent the afternoon with his new boyfriend, Trick. He would meet somebody like at the sock store or the grocery store or the fruit stand or whatever and spend the afternoon in some random apartment, and then he'd be late, and I was pissed. One night, Mark came over to my apartment really late. He was supposed to come at like nine or 10, and he showed up at like two in the morning. And Mark, you know, the thing is we were so close, Mark knew all my secrets. Mark knew I was a virgin. Mark knew that even though I pretended I loved the city, I was a little scared. Mark was the first man who ever looked at me and said, I know you're all going to look, but he was the first one who ever looked at me and said, do you know the left one's a little bit bigger? And I was like, yeah, I do. (laughs) Yeah, they're mine. And Mark knew something else that I didn't know then. Mark showed up in my apartment that night at 2 in the morning, and I was pissed. I was like, dude, you fucking told me you were coming over, and you didn't, and now... And Mark shooed me out of the living area and into the bedroom and he sat down at the table and he wrote me a note. And the note said I know we sleep together which we did. Literally sleep together. I would spend whole nights wrapped in those big white biceps which for me was sort of like this was a perfect boyfriend arrangement you know. He said I know we sleep together but you need to get it into your head right now that I love men, and that's not gonna change. If you can wrap your head around that, we can move forward. And I did. And we did. And for the next two years, we had the best time. We did a lot of drugs. You should know. Let me, <laughs> let, let me just tell you in case, there, there are so many things I can tell you that you don't know, but If you have ever been to a frat party and thought, like, oh, my God, these guys so know how to party, that's because you have never spent a night getting it on with the gay guys. (laughs) Those guys, every story I'm ever going to tell you about me and Mark, start from the beginning, like, without me saying it, start with, they were high as fuck and... (laughs) Mark got a pretty person job. They opened the new Century Paramount Hotel in Times Square, and we went up on the roof to get high. We walked through the city speaking our own little sort of secret code language as we found the best places for everything. And we thought we were so in the know, you know? All the daddies who helped him out, you know, one daddy got him a new job, one daddy got him a new apartment. There was always a daddy hooking him up with Blow. So we go out one night, right? And he puts the familiar little brown vial in my hand and sends me off to the bathroom. And I come back and like my eyes must be about this big because I'm like, what the fuck? And he goes, oh my God, how much did you do? And I was like, I don't know, same as ever. He goes, oh shit, that wasn't Coke, that was crystal meth. I was like, well, now is an excellent time to tell me thank you very much. I stayed up for two days. (laughs) Soon enough, one of the daddies introduced him to this man who got him a job at The Saint. The Saint was the city's biggest, chicest, gayest nightclub. And his job was to be a go-go boy. He would dance in a cage on the bar in his underwear. And he had a good time doing it. And he got an apartment through this man at a building at 8 St. Mark's Place in the East Village. 8 St. Mark's Place was full of totally illegal apartments. It was the building next to the building that had been the Continental Baths that had been shuttered when the AIDS crisis broke open. So there was this abandoned building next door and there was this building full of these beautiful men and somehow, magically, Mark got me and Karen the apartment on the top floor and these two straight girls moved into this building and it was like tales of New York City. We had the best time for two years and then things got dark. Richard Gabriel, the man underneath us, he was the first one. He got the spots on his face and he lost the weight and he needed a cane to walk. And up and down the street, the men were getting sick. And Mark was doing more and more blow and was having weirder and weirder experiences. He was going out, every weekend he would go to Fire Island. And for the first two years, that also was great and light and fun. And then one day, he came home from Fire Island. He used, to, he used to come home late Sunday night because Sunday afternoons, there was something called tea dances, which I think is secret gay code for like Coke and disco starting right after brunch. And so he would come home Sunday night because he had to stay for the tea dance. And one Monday, he came to me where I was working and he took me into a side room and he took off his shirt And his whole torso was covered with these tiny little scabbed over cuts. And I was like, what happened? And he goes, I don't know. Somebody put something in my drink and I woke up this way. And Karen and I, we would talk to him all the time. And we'd be like, dude, do whatever you're going to do. Really. Like, go live your life. You do you. But gay men's health crisis is handing out condoms literally on every corner. They are giving them away free. Like, just please, for God's sake, be smart. And of course he was like, yeah, yeah, I will, of course, I will, I will. And then one day, Mark came to us in that fifth floor, that fabulous, shitty apartment. And he sat down, Karen was in her pink chair. And I was on that horrible black and brown corduroy sofa bed that it took four men to move up the stairs. And Mark sat in the chair under the cheap nylon fabric that we had so decoratively draped on the wall to cover where the plaster was peeling off. And he said, you guys, I got tested and I'm positive. And I experienced this incredible mix of devastation and rage. I was like, you're so fucking stupid, but of course you don't say that, you know? And here's another thing that you might not know yet, and you're lucky if you don't, but I know this. When somebody you love gets a terminal diagnosis, but they're not sick yet, everything just moves forward. So he got diagnosed, and we all move forward. He started working, painting fabric, and decorating windows. And Karen found David, and they were together, and they got engaged, and they got married. And I found Andrew, and I got engaged, and I got married. And we all moved on. Mark wasn't sick too much until the coke was really out of control. He left town for a while, he went to rehab somewhere and came back with some big blue AA book and everything was better again for a couple of minutes. And then one night he was supposed to come over and uh, he didn't show up. He sent up to my apartment some money that he owed me with the doorman and a note that said he loved me and he was gonna go home to Texas and dry out for a while and a copy of Bette Midler's CD, The Divine Miss M. That was always our song. Bette Midler has this song that's Friends, and we would dance around the apartment in the good days, singing, um, Cher was singing If I Could Turn Back Time, and Bette Midler would sing Friends, because you got to have friends. Na, 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 And he sends these things up, and he goes home to Texas. When he's ready to come back from Texas, Michael, who was not a daddy, Michael was actually a really decent guy that Mark was living with at the time, Michael got in touch with me and he said, Mark's coming back, he's in the hospital, you should go see him, he'll want to see you, but you should be prepared, he looks different, and he did. I went to see him and that big, beautiful boy had lost maybe a quarter or a third of his body weight. He was in a hospital, Johnny. He was wearing these big, dark Ray-Bans that just sort of floated on his face and dragging an IV pole everywhere he went. He got kind of better, better enough to go back to an apartment for a while, but he couldn't stay. He started floating between a place called Rivington House, which was like a nursing home for AIDS patients, and St. Vincent's. And his mama, who I was so stupid and shallow as to think maybe didn't love him so much because he had to buy his own plane tickets home to Texas for Thanksgiving, his mama, this woman who had worked as a correctional officer her whole career, who had never left Texas, moved up to New York and into a place called Miracle House. It was like a Ronald McDonald's house for parents of AIDS patients. And she would go between Miracle House and Rivington House in St. Vincent's. One day, I went to see him in the hospital, and I told him I was pregnant, and he started to cry. And not long after that, Emily was born, but I was never able to bring Emily to see him, not because of what I was afraid she might get from him, but because what she could bring into the room eventually i went to see him one day at saint vincent's near the end his father his piece of shit father had come from texas and told him that this was all his own fault and mark had found the strength even as he was dying to tell that man to get the fuck out of the room and i walked in and i found mark and his mother together and mark rolled onto his side and he said mama scratch my back and that woman took her thick hand and rubbed it on his back, and he kind of melted into her. I remember that all the time now. I have two children of my own. They're almost 16 and almost 20, so they're close to launched. But still, once in a while, one will come to me and pull up the back of his or her shirt and say, Mom, scratch my back. And, you know, my nails, they're way fake. and I think that my husband thinks I do it for him because he likes it, but the truth is I do it for my kids because I want them to say, Mama, scratch my back. Eventually, it comes to be December 1998, I'm going to Florida for a week's vacation and I know Mark's not gonna make it. And I go to the hospital and I'm in that room, that airless kind of room. And he's vacant, you know? And I'm 33, and I've never seen somebody I love through to their death before, and I don't quite know how to do it. And I sit in the chair, and I say the things that I see people say on TV. You know, I love you, and I'll miss you, and it's okay. You can go now. And I know in my heart as I do it, I'm playing at something, but it's time for me to go, and as I'm sort of getting ready to gather my things, all of a sudden he opens his eyes, and he's there. And he looks at me, and he goes, Hey. And I said, Hey. And we got a couple of minutes, and we got to really say goodbye. And I, uh, I went to Florida, and I got the call that said Mark had died, and that I would miss... The service because it was happening while I was away and and that was that and now what I have are my memories of him I know when I line my belt up just right because it's the way they taught him in the military to line up the buckle in the gig line I think of Mark when my son is in a good lot of trouble and I say Jonah Mark Cole I think of Mark because he is named for him when I listen to Bette Midler, I think of Mark, a couple of years after Mark died, maybe five, 10 years, I saw this video of Bette Midler singing at an Amfar benefit and she's singing our song, Friends, and she gets to the line where she goes, I had some friends, but they're gone. Something came and took them away. And she stops the band. And she looks at the crowd and she says, doesn't sound the same anymore, does it? And I thought, not bad. Sure doesn't. Thank you.
1: And I am all alone. There is no one here beside
0: me. And my problems have all gone. There is no one to deride me,
3: but you got to have.
1: This is risk. This is Bette Midler behind me now, and we just heard from Terry Wolfish-Cole. Terry is the founder of Tell Me Another, a storytelling show in the Hartford area. She's recently been featured on the Moth Radio Hour and in Reader's Digest. You can find her on Twitter at tell underscore me underscore another or on Facebook at Tell Me Another Stories. I want to give a shout-out to our newest Patreon patron, Michael Simpson, who is giving us $50 a month. We give a shout-out to anyone who gives us $25 or more a month. And thank you so much, Mr. Michael Simpson. We truly, deeply appreciate it. We rely very much on the help of our fans giving to us at patreon.com slash risk. Remember, if you uh, don't like listening to the ads during the course of any given episode, you can get ad-free episodes released on the very same day as they do in the free feed if you become a Patreon patron for $10 a month or more. Plus, there's so much bonus content there at our Patreon. If you go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash risk, there's extra stories, there's video, audio, behind-the-scenes information. It's a real treat, even if you're just giving $1 a month. So, patreon.com slash risk. I also want to talk for a second about HelloFresh. If you don't know, HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks who are short on time. They have the freshest ingredients delivered right to your doorstep. They're now offering fall meals and just introduced breakfast options. It's less than $10 a meal. I love it, and I don't normally think I'm much of a cook, you know, so it's a real treat to be guided through making an outrageously delicious meal. So for $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter the code RISK30 when you subscribe. That's $30 off your first week of deliveries. Visit HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code RISK30. Our final story for this week's episode comes to us from a legendary figure from the comedy world, Scott Thompson of Kids in the Hall. Back in the early 90s, there were really only two original sketch comedy groups on TV. By that, I mean groups that were not cast by network executives, but had formed organically. The State and Kids in the Hall. Kids in the Hall came a couple years earlier than the State, I think. And Scott was very out of the closet on the show, on Kids in the Hall, which was a tremendous inspiration for me. You know, when I first did the sketch, The Jew, the Italian, and the Redhead Gay, when I was 24 years old in 1994, that was a real unusual thing at that time. So I'm very, I've always been very inspired by Scott and I'm very proud of both of us for having done that back then. Anyway, if you're not familiar with Kids in the Hall and Scott's other work, you'll, you will readily find out he is quite a character. Here he is now at our monthly show that we do at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles with a story we call time out of mind.
3: Thank you very much. Um, I, I've been drunk and high many times. I've pretty much done everything. Uh, but I, I wanted to talk tonight about a, a different kind of intoxication that I've never really—I don't really speak about—spiritual <laughs> intoxication or religious fervor or mania. You <laughs> know. Well, this is a risk, right? <laughs> I. I uh, <sighs> I could talk about, like, everything that 2 to 11 men can do to one another, but this is really embarrassing. (laughs) A lot of it outdoors. I went through a period uh, from the year 2000 to 2005 where I was in a constant state of either religious ecstasy or utter despair. I wanted to stay in the state of religious ecstasy, but I kept having to court despair to get there. In uh, late 1999... I was living in West Hollywood with my boyfriend, uh, Joel Solaire, a French filmmaker who made documentaries. And uh, one day he told me that he wanted to make a satirical film about the private life of Saddam Hussein. I'm like, who cares about that old despot? But he had a feeling that his name would be popular very soon. So he flew off to Baghdad, which at the time was actually a functioning city. And he came back with all this great footage, and uh, he asked me to write the narration for his documentary called Uncle Saddam. At the same time, I was working on a script about a businessman who becomes a sex slave in a world at the center of the earth and loves it. I mean, right? Who wouldn't? So I start to research ancient lore about the hollow earth. Every night I get high and I go online and then I disappear into the delirium of the hollow earth cult. I discover that the ancient Inca believed that the entrance to the inner kingdom lay beneath a sacred lake high up in the mountains called Lake Titicaca. It's a real place. One night I had this dream where a cave woman is chasing me with a club down a mountain path, which I somehow know is in the Andes. And then just as she's about to get me, I'm rescued by a pterodactyl. (laughs) Naturally, I interpret this to mean that I must go to Lake Titicaca because something is waiting for me there. I'm not sure what it is. An albino with a scroll. Tom Hanks with a talisman. All I know is I have this compulsion to go. I'm like Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So I book a flight to Peru. And just to make it more interesting, I quit smoking and I go on the patch. (laughs) When I get to Peru, I discover that Lake Titicaca is 11,000 feet above sea level, so the air is very thin. You're always a little oxygen deprived. I'm constantly dizzy, and I collapse on the bus going there at 9,000 feet. The only thing that helps is something called coca tea, which is made from the leaves which gives us that precious drug, cocaine. Now, all of this makes it very likely that I will have a Shirley MacLaine type of experience, the mystical kind, not the yelling at a PA for bringing you a cold cup of coffee kind. (laughs) On my last night, I had this vivid dream where I was in Soho, Manhattan, with my brother Dean, who had just committed suicide a couple of years before. We were walking along quietly when he suddenly pointed up in the sky and we saw a large passenger jet coming in very low over the city. It had three stripes on its nose, orange, blue, and yellow. The plane wobbled its wings a bit and then it dove into the skyscraper and exploded. I tell my brother that I'm supposed to be on that plane. And then suddenly we're in a car driving towards the crash site. But as we drive, the landscape changes from urban to rural. Up ahead, we can see another plane has crashed It's in a farmer's field. There's barbed wire surrounding the wreckage, and many people gathered there. As I get closer, I realize that I know everybody. They tell me to go home, but I insist that I'm supposed to be on that plane. So I crawl under the barbed wire, and I enter the burning wreckage. Inside, everybody is on fire, and they're screaming in agony. But when they see me, they stop, and they begin to yell at me to leave. There's a lady from my childhood there, Mrs. White, who had a son who died when I was a kid, and she's engulfed in flames. She tells me that I have to leave. It's not my time, and that if I stay, I'll make a terrible angel. (laughs) So I know when I'm not wanted, and it's hard to argue with an angel in flames. So I leave, and as I crawl back under the wire, One of my best friend's mothers, Rena Bellini, the mother of Paul Bellini, one of my best friends, comes up to me and says that she saw my interview on Larry King and that I should be ashamed of myself because not all tragedies are mine. Then I wake up. I'm frantic because I know that what happened was not a dream. I'm convinced that my brother was actually there and that he was trying to tell me something. So I said out loud his name, Dean, I said. Was that you? And the lamp on the bedside table switched on. The next morning I went down to the travel agency and I canceled my flight. The plane did not have three stripes on the nose, but there was no way I was getting on that plane. I book an overnight bus to Lima where I take another plane back home to Los Angeles. When I returned to LA, my boyfriend's movie is finished. It's now called Uncle Saddam and it begins to do the festival circuit. But as it tours, he becomes progressively more and more paranoid. One day Joel tells me that he thinks that our phone is tapped and that there are men watching our house. I scoff, I'm like, this is the United States of America. (laughs) You crazy frog. And then I remember that I'd seen a car the other day parked outside of our house in West Hollywood with a man inside reading the L.A. Times for hours. That's not possible. (laughs) (laughs) On November the 2nd, 2000, I wake up to my boyfriend screaming in my face that, Ziv, come! Ziv, come! He grabs me and he pulls me to the door. As I step out onto the porch, I slip on what looks like a pool of blood on the concrete. A red blotch drops on my shoulder. It's like the climax of Carrie. And of course, I sleep in a prom dress. (laughs) So, you can imagine. But it's not pig's blood. It's actually red paint, and it's all over the house. It's dripping off the windows into the garden. I can see that the lawn is scorched, and our giant L.A. garbage cans are now just a puddle of melted plastic on the driveway with burnt garbage strewn everywhere. Then Joel hands me a piece of paper that he found in the foyer, which reads, In the name of Allah, the merciful and compassionate, burn this satanic film or you will be dead. And the word dead was underlined, so we knew it was serious. (laughs) And then the awful truth hits me. We'd been firebombed by terrorists, and I slept through it. (laughs) I would never get over that. So I decided that What I would do was what I usually do when I have something disturbing happen to me. I would write a one-man show (laughs) about terrorism. (laughs) I would call it the lowest show on earth. The first piece I wrote, as if it was delivered to me, was a Buddy Cole monologue, where my character Buddy Cole disguises himself as a princess from Yemen (laughs) and goes to Afghanistan to meet Osama bin Laden, but ends up being kidnapped by Uday Hussein while haggling over a crystal decanter of anthrax. (laughs) It was like a comedy routine by Nostradamus. Eventually, I get a six week run off Broadway. My show is supposed to open in Soho on September the 19th, 2001. On September the 10th, 10,000 copies of my poster go up all over Manhattan. The poster is me in a prison haircut with a big glob of cum dripping down my face under the words, the lowest show on earth. I know that when New York wakes up the next day, I will be a star. (laughs) On September the 11th, 2001, I got up early. We had a final rehearsal for the show before we left Toronto for New York the following day. As I walked through the living room, I turned on the TV. The first thing I saw was footage of New Yorkers running madly through the streets. I think to myself, oh my God, they've seen the poster. (laughs) Then the second plane hits. On the 14th of September, when the American border with Canada reopened, my youngest brother, Derek, and I decided to take our American stage manager back home to New York because she was too afraid to fly. My show had still not been officially canceled, but everybody that knew that it was dead but me. I was convinced that what America needed at this time was a lighthearted look at terrorism (laughs) by a Canadian comedian in shock. When we drove on to Manhattan, my brother and I could see that there were lots of cars streaming out, but almost nobody going in. Everywhere you looked, you could see signs of disaster, little shrines of candles, missing posters, billboards for Mariah Carey's glitter. Remember? <laughs> A lot of us went down that day <laughs> and never recovered. 14th Street, the barricades began. You couldn't go any further. So we got in behind this official-looking dark sedan with blacked-out windows and a cherry on top. They pulled back the gates for whoever the dignitary was, and we fell in behind like we were together. (laughs) And the next thing you knew, we were inside the forbidden zone. There were people everywhere, military, police, many of them clutching guns, yet nobody seemed to notice us. It was like we were invisible or ghosts. My brother and I decided to just keep driving, just see how close we could get to it. The further south we went, the darker and the smokier it got. Then suddenly we turned a corner and my brother pointed up in the sky, much like our dead brother had done the year before in my dream, although at the time I had not yet made the connection. I looked where my brother was pointing and there it was, ground Zero. Right in front of us, we could see a knot of twisted girders thrusting up into the sky. It looked like a pitchfork sticking out of the smoking mouth of hell. It sure smelled like it. It was vile and yet oddly sweet. Electronics, plastic, oranges, and pork. And since that day, I've never eaten human flesh again. (laughs) Not even a scab. (laughs) And I thought, hey, maybe we should leave. <laughs> We're going to get shots. So we turn around and we drive back up the west side. When we get to the barriers, they pulled them back like before. And on the other side, there's all these people cheering the heroes of 9-11. My brother and I didn't want to be rude, so we waved back graciously like good Canadians. <laughs> the next few years of my life, Aren't really worth speaking about. I struggled mightily. The best job I had (laughs) was Untouched by an Angel (laughs) with Della Reese. Nothing more needs to be said. (laughs) You don't know rock bottom (laughs) until you guest star Untouched by an Angel in Salt Lake City. In 2005, I fall into a terrible funk. That kind of a funk where you don't get dressed or bathed for days. And when a light bulb goes out, you don't replace it. You just abandon the room. (laughs) I decided I needed a holiday from doing nothing. And I had a feeling that something was coming again. I went to my travel agent. It was March break. Everything was booked except one space on a charter holiday in Panama. Seven days and eight nights with 284 middle class Canadian families in one of those all inclusive resorts where you eat at a buffet with lots of bratty kids and you have to wear a bracelet. I'm in. <laughs> I'm supposed to go there. A few days before I go, I decide that I'm going to paint my little office. After two days, I've only painted the door, so I decide to add cocaine to the mix to speed things up a little bit. By the time it's done, I've started smoking again, and I've made every mistake possible, from forgetting to prime to painting flat directly over gloss. That's a nightmare! (laughs) And for some reason, i painted my office red, blue, and orange in homage to the stripes on the plane. My version of Richard Dreyfuss's smashed potatoes. (laughs) I stay up the night before my flight doing the finishing touches and the rest of the blow. (laughs) At first light, I'm off to the airport. When I arrive in Panama, I'm in a wreck. I'm discouraged disgusting the perfect condition for another mystical experience when I finally arrive at the resort I collapse for the next three days I stay in my room only occasionally going out to eat I read five books as my body slowly gains back the serotonin I lost from the coke Eventually, on day three, I've had enough. I check out of the all-inclusive, and I take a cab to the city. At the hotel in Panama City, I get wasted on margaritas by the pool. And as the darkness settles on the city, I crawl into my chair, and I begin to talk to my deceased brother, Dean. I beg him for forgiveness for continuing to live while he was dead. I cry quietly to myself as I ask the heavens why I can't find peace. And all the while, I can feel this quickening in my blood continuing to build. The next morning, outside the hotel, all the cab drivers are waiting for business. One of them, a Panamanian about 40 years old, in a white linen suit, asks me politely in excellent English if I wanted to go see the canal. i come all this way, and I still hadn't seen the friggin' Panama Canal. But I was still in a bad mood, so I said, No. (laughs) No, not interested. (laughs) Then that voice in my head says, Scott, don't be such a hungover coke cunt. Go with that, man. (laughs) See the canal, you idiot. So I get in his back seat, and he goes, No, no. No, senor. You sit here in the front seat with me. Now, I've never had a cabbie ask me to do that. Well, okay. Once I did but that was for a blowjob. This was different, people. This was spiritual. His name was Hector. He was a family man with a wife and three daughters. And there was something about him that was so reassuring that before I knew it, I began spilling my guts to him about my sadness. I began telling him all about the last five years of my life, all my trials and tribulations, my first world search for peace. I told him about my dream in Peru and how I was waiting for the penny to drop and how I wanted that feeling again of being plugged into some deeper truth. We're whipping along the highway at about 70 miles an hour and I'm whining on when Hector looks at me and he says, Senor, you must believe in God. And he touches his rosary which hangs from his rearview mirror. And at that very moment, the side window where I would have been sitting suddenly exploded inward, filling the whole car with glass. Immediately, my depression was gone and I was happy. It was as if a demon had leapt out of my chest and smashed its way out of that back window. I suddenly believed in God. And as Hector fought to keep the car on the road, I just laughed. I beamed like an idiot, filled with God's love. I knew he or she would protect me. You see how I did that? I realized that I'd been fighting this ever since he or she had switched on that light in Peru, but I hadn't been ready then. Now I was. I'd made up a million explanations for what I knew was a miracle. But for some reason, the moment Hector touched that rosary, I was done fighting. I gave up and I said, I believe. As Hector regained control and pulled the cab over to the side of the highway, I remained totally calm, high as a kite. On the cleanest drug of all, God. What a thrill. I realized that if Hector hadn't asked me to sit up front, I would have been flushed with the blown up window and I would have been killed or at least horribly maimed. And that's worse, people. I'm a face. Hector and I brushed the glass off us and we got out and then we discovered the only injury that we had suffered were two identical nicks on our ring fingers. We cleaned up the back seat which was filled with glass but we found nothing. Nothing that could have caused the explosion. No rock, no bullet, nothing. That window had been completely removed So I told Hector that I would fix his window because after all, it was my demon that had wrecked it. (laughs) He thought that was a great idea. (laughs) Then he took me to the oldest church in Panama so that I could get a rosary just like his. And as we were pulling away from the church, there were three distinct knocks on the surviving side back window. We looked around, but there was nobody there. The street was completely empty. Hector told me that God was telling me that I was doing the right thing. At the airport the next day, I was walking on air, joyous with the knowledge that there is a God and he or she loves me. I couldn't wait to get back to work, to begin a one-man show and rededicate myself to my craft. Then I noticed that the symbol of the airline on the wall behind the counter was three stripes, red, blue, and orange. The colors of my office and the stripes on the plane from Lake Titicaca. I began to shake like a leaf. What the hell is going on? I'm thinking, I know something is wrong with the plane. I know it, but I'm furious. I'm thinking how unfair it is that I'm going to die after being happy for only two days. (laughs) That's not right. I don't want to get on that plane, but I know that if I don't, then I will continue to be ruled by fear, the fear that has stalked me ever since that firebombing. I know that I have to get on that plane. It feels like some sort of a test. I'm so unnerved that I sit down in the middle of the terminal floor, I open up my bag, I take out a Valium, and I swallow it down. And I thank God for the lax pharmacies in Latin America. (laughs) When I get to the counter, the woman asks me for my passport. So I tell her that first, I have a few questions for her. <laughs> she looks at me like I'm a terrorist, and she calls her boss over. I ask him if the plane has three stripes the same color on the side of the plane. He tells me that there are only two stripes on the side of the plane. They are both blue, and that the stripes on the wall behind me, are just, her, are just the symbol of the charter company. I sigh with relief, and I give him my passport. Then I take my boarding pass, and I move towards the metal detectors. I think to myself, well, Scott, if this is it, at least you know what it's like to be truly happy. You have had a pretty exciting life. The moment I'm through the gate, I race to the restaurant for a beer, and I chug it down. For this trip, I'm going to need the Holy Trinity. Beer, God, and Valium. (laughs) Suddenly, there's a commotion at the viewing window. Everybody races over to see what's going on. I join them, and I push my way through the crowd to look out onto the tarmac. I can see that our plane from Toronto has arrived. It looks completely normal, except for the fact that there are three large dents on the nose. I feel a huge surge of relief, as if somehow I've passed some sort of a test. Then a woman, dressed very officially, comes over and makes an announcement about how there has been an incident in the air which has damaged the plane, and that they are going to send for another one from Toronto, and that we will be spending the night at the hotel. As we're all filing onto the buses, the rumor sweeps through the airport that a pelican hit the plane. We spend the night in a beautiful new hotel. The company wines and dines us. We have a fabulous time. After a couple of hours sleep, we get up at 4 a.m. The next morning, we go back to the airport. We get onto the plane, an uneventful flight, about half an hour before we land in Toronto. I notice that the stewardess is staring at me. She comes over, and she tells me that she's a big fan, and I thank her, and I ask her if she was on the flight from Toronto the day before. She says she was, so I ask her what happened. She tells me, She's not supposed to, but since she's such a big fan, she will. I thank her for breaking the rules. Then she leans down. She puts her face close to mine, and she whispers in my ear that the pilot told her that as they were beginning their descent into Panama City, a flock of 12 to 14 eagles flew directly into the plane, damaging the nose. Not enough to bring it down, but enough to prevent it from making the return journey. Now, do I believe that because I was willing to get on that plane, even though I knew something was wrong, that I had passed some sort of cosmic test, and because of that, God had then sent his or her battalion of eagles to damage the plane, preventing it from making the doomed flight And furthermore, that if I hadn't gone on that plane, all those people would have died just to teach me a lesson. (laughs) Which would mean that I'd saved all their lives by being willing to die myself, thus making me a character in a Jungian hero's journey. I have no idea. All I know is it happened, and I was high for two years after that. It felt amazing, but it went away. And I've never experienced those spiritual highs ever again like that. Now it's just kind of a low level hum that I could wake up through various means drugs, sleep deprivation, stress. I think that's why I moved back to the States six weeks ago. (laughs) A shock to the system. And I think it's working because I'm starting to have weird dreams again. And you don't want to know what they are. Thank you very much. And wait for it. God bless. Good night.
1: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Sin Cain behind me now. And we just heard from Scott Thompson, who you can find on Twitter at ScottThompson underscore. Remember, if you are interested in sending us very short little theme songs with the word risk in them... Or interstitials for us to run in between the stories, little sound collages and audio experiments. Write to me at Kevin at risk-show.com and I'll send you all you need to know about that. Remember, you can pitch us your stories at any time if you go to risk submissions there's a video there and there's a whole sound file for you to listen to lots of helpful encouraging tips and guidelines for how to pitch us and how to start working on a story at the submissions page at risk-show.com Now I'm going to list for you all the places we're appearing live next On September 9th, we are in Salt Lake City, Utah. September 9th, we're in Salt Lake at the Urban Lounge. On September 16th, we are back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. September 16th, at the Bootleg in Los Angeles. On September 26th, we're having a very special show. September 26th. At the Bell House in Brooklyn, we're teaming up with Body Storytelling from San Francisco. Dixie De La Tour is going to co-host the show with me. It's all going to be kinky sex stories on September 26th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. So if you're anywhere near Brooklyn on September 26th, you can't miss that one. On November 3rd, we're in Baltimore, Maryland. At the Creative Alliance, the theme is Obsession, and we're still taking pitches for that one. On November 9th, we're in Chicago, Illinois. The theme that night is Revealing. We're still taking pitches on that one. November 10th, we're in Madison, Wisconsin. The theme that night is Huge. Still taking pitches for that one. November 11th, Detroit, Michigan. The theme is Surprise. Still taking pitches for that one. December 2nd, we are in Phoenix, Arizona, at the Valley Bar. The theme is jaw-dropping, and we're still taking pitches there. You can pitch us at risk-show.com submissions. And if you're interested in any sort of education around storytelling and public speaking, look for us at storystudio.org one-on-one training over Skype, in-person workshops in New York, in Minneapolis and Los Angeles, and corporate workshops. It's all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. going to record donkey snoring. Well, really just kind of breathing hard.